Hey, bro. How are you doing? I'm blessed. I can't complain. How are you? I am currently sitting in my kitchen at 12.49. Uh, Good morning. In the morning. Uh, about to record a podcast. You are. And um, happy birthday, I- bro. And it's my birthday as well. Uh, I'm good. I'm I'm really good. And I sent a message to my girlfriend who was trying to give me a call to say happy birthday uh, to let her know that I was recording the podcast and we'd have to have a chat afterwards. And um, yeah, so I'm in trouble. But at the same time, I couldn't imagine not doing this this week. So the reason why we're doing this podcast at midnight is because I want to spend the day with her. But... I still need to get some some stuff off my chest. Uh, this has become uh, an integral part of my week and I couldn't imagine not doing it now. So I'm really glad that we made the decision however long ago to do it. And if somebody asks me, what are you going to take away from this COVID-19 period? One of the first things that's going to stand out to me is this podcast. Amen to that. Because you just killed me in her eyes and then resurrected us at the same time. First, you called her your girlfriend when she's your fiance. Second, oh, I'm editing that out. Second, you ignored her message or call in the morning of your birthday. You know, women like value this kind of stuff. Like, I'm going to wait until midnight and I'm going to call him to say happy birthday for his 30th. And then he texts me saying, Oh, sorry, I'm on the podcast call. Um, but then you, you saved it by saying, actually, you want to spend the day with her. So you're actually relegating me to the dregs of the hours of the day. So it's all good. Yeah, I'm going to spend the day with my lovely fiance, the most beautiful woman in the world. Amen. And just, uh, yeah, just, just bask in her amazingness and uh, all of the fantastic, am, am I sucking up or not? Sure, I need to, all of the fantastic energy that she brings to, to me and my life. I just want her to know that I'm on her team. I'm rooting for her. Go, go, go. (laughs) Well, considering it is um, nearly one o'clock in the morning, we are going to try our best to keep this short and sweet, ladies and gentlemen, with a conversation about marketing. And the aim of this discussion is how do you stand out with your products or service in an industry which is fiercely competitive and has a lot of dwindling attention from potential customers? Huge question. Huge. Massive question. Massive question. And it's one that I think is important to somebody who's just starting out, to somebody who is building a product or service, building a business, and wants to understand how to get attention, get eyes from potential customers. But it's also one that I think every business needs to revisit on a yearly basis in this day and age. Because the marketing techniques that you employ in 2018 aren't going to be relevant in 2020. And so... As well as it being a useful exercise for new companies and new businesses, I think it's absolutely vital that a company who's established also goes through the exercise of actually assessing their marketing strategy and seeing if it's still relevant uh, in 2020. A hundred percent. If people don't think this is relevant, 
they need to think about Nokia and Toys R Us. <laughs> and Blockbuster, my favourite. And good old Blockbusters. Wow. This is everyone's daily diet. Let's get into it. So I want to start off by talking about what marketing is, because I think people have different views of what marketing is. Some people think marketing is advertising. So if you work in marketing, maybe they've watched Mad Men and they've seen these uh, advertising companies and they've designed these really sophisticated, dramatic adverts. And maybe that's what they imagine when they see or hear the term marketing. But marketing is a lot broader than that. So the way I I try to define marketing is communicating perceived value to the appropriate target customer. So that's a bit of a mouthful, but I'll break that down a bit. So communicating is very straightforward, but there are multiple channels of communication. Communicating can be done in so many different ways, not just verbally, not just through audio, not just through um, images, uh, but through any way that somebody can sense is a way of communicating with the customer. Um, Perceived value is another piece because if we were only buying products based on what they were actually worth, then companies like Nike and Burberry (laughs) would be out of business a long time ago. But the reason why companies like Nike, Prada, Gucci have such high price tags is because of the perceived value that they bring. And we're going to spend a bit of time talking about what we mean by perceived value. But the value isn't just what the leather and the plastic sewed together is worth. It's what the brand as a whole is worth. So we're talking about communicating the perceived value. And the last piece is to your target audience. And that's important because depending on who you speak to, your product means different things. Uh, If I'm using the Nike example again, Nike means something completely different to the 15-year-old boy in Harlem who's playing basketball that compared to the 60-year-old man in Northampton. Playing golf. Playing golf. Same brand, completely different messages. So communicating perceived value to a target audience, that's all marketing is, in my humble opinion. And before we actually go into the communicating part, I actually want to start the other way around. So I want to start by talking about the target audience. And the first question that I have with that in mind is how do you go about identifying your target audience? So this could be either you've got a business and you want to make sure that you're targeting the right people, or maybe you don't even have a business yet, but you want to start by actually finding the right target group. What would your suggestions be for a a business that wants to go about identifying their target audience? Challenging question. Um, First, I would agree with the forensic approach. Um, I see it less as fishing and more as darts. 
um, I think firstly have to accept that their initial approach might be like a fisherman who's going to enjoy his day, but expects it to take a long period of time until he actually catches the fish. I think it needs to be a lot more acute and be like darts where you're targeting a specific group. How do you target that group? Who could potentially be interested in your product? Who is guaranteed to be interested in your product? And then who would you like to be interested in your product? Um, thank you, God, because I'm making this up off the top of my head. But I think once you think about those three questions, you start to refine a potential uh, unlimited group of 7 billion people down to a specific group of maybe 7 million people or possibly only 7,000 people, depending upon your product or service. Um, I think once you go through that process, you'll be able to see, well, there are some people who you'd want to actually purchase, but they might not actually be interested in purchasing, possibly because of the price tag, because of the convenience, because of the lifestyle they actually currently have. Thinking about those who are currently purchasing the product, how much do they spend on the product? As a total, how big is the market itself? Um, globally, nationally, how easy is it for you to actually enter into that market? Um, is the rate of entry rapid where loads of people are going into it and thus it's something which is potentially flooded with several different competitors or is it something which is a little bit more niche? I think once you start to really ask pertinent questions about who is buying, why they're buying, how much they're spending, then you're able to create a a profile for your customers and their spending habits. Um, I so, hope that's not too so, vague. Well, it, we're going to delve into that because I think we can look at a, a real-world example, uh, which is us and London Virgin Hair. So we sell high-end luxury hair extensions, custom wigs. Take me back to, well, almost... 10 years ago now, or actually over 10 years, when the idea for the business first came into your mind. <laughs> how, how did you know that this business had legs? And how did you identify who your target audience was? The first, the first simple question is, are people spending their money on it? Do you see people spending their money on it? Um, that's an easy way of getting into a business. If you personally in your day-to-day -day life, do not see people spending money on it. Potentially, you're going into an environment which is foreign and you need to do a great deal of research. We saw countless women spending their hard-earned pittance salaries on hair extensions whilst we were trying to buy cars. Very stereotypical. And whilst we joked and mocked what they were doing, it became apparent that this was a thriving industry which was only going to grow. Now that's soft data. Flash forward several years when I started doing the, the hard crunching research, looking at the hard data, it became apparent that this is a booming industry. It's a booming industry which isn't actually being executed well. And that's where you actually find a gold mine. Because if you know that people are spending money on a product, which on occasions isn't being delivered in a way it could be, or on a service which isn't being executed professionally, 
you can then add value. Um, at some point, Nike added value in the eyes of their customers, either through affiliation or sponsorships, and thus they were able to price themselves higher than their competitors. So in short, it was seeing that people were willing to spend their hard-earned money on this, seeing that people attributed a great feeling to the product, which we can speak about later on, and that this is something which wasn't actually being executed as well as it could be, those three things really propelled my understanding of the market and my later research into the ins and outs of it. So I want to add a couple of points to what you said. I think the first thing I would say is I agree that the best way to determine whether your business has legs is to see if people are spending money in that space already. It's not the only way, though. So if you've got a new idea, which is so fresh and innovative, that is very hard to determine whether people are spending money on it yet. The next question you can ask yourself is, are people losing money as a result of not having your product or service? So if you can identify an area where people are losing money on a regular basis, then you potentially have a disruptive solution which could revolutionize an industry. And there are a lot of ideas that have completely left my mind because it's one o'clock in the morning. But what I'm hoping for in the future is a disruptor in the mortgage space. Because anybody who's currently going through the process of um, buying a home knows how much money they lose in the transaction just because of maybe uh, uncertainty, things not being clear, etc. So if somebody comes in with a disruptor, which completely transforms the mortgage industry uh, and charges some money for it, people are going to be willing to pay if they can see how much money they might save as a result. One potential disruptor would be another loan company. And I say another loan company in that we, we spoke about Klarna last week. Now, many people know Klarna, but in essence, what Klarna are doing is that they are paying your debt for you and recouping it later on. Now, that is not a new business model. Um, mm. It's a loan. They're offering loans. Could it be possible for an organization to pay things up front for you so that you are then able to pay them back later on? to speed up the process of the transaction, knowing that they are covering the initial pain, reducing the long-term cost in the expectation that you pay up on time. But if you do not, you then pay additional to what you would have paid if you went through the traditional route. Now, they wouldn't brand it as that. They'll just say, hey, we'll cover all the legals for you just pay us. Exactly. And if you position it or package it as a very clear value proposition, and by that I mean here is the problem that you're currently dealing with and here is how our offer helps solve that problem, then it's in the customer's hands to connect the dots and say, you know, I want to take this further. Um, another example, which is a bit closer to home for us, is one trend that we're currently seeing 
in the hair and beauty industry is at-home services. So for instance, getting your hair done in the comfort of your home as opposed to going to a hair salon and maybe booking it online. So why does this business model make sense for a customer? Well, because they're saving money. Previously, they would have had to consider, let's say, for instance, driving to a location. So the petrol that they'd have to spend um, uh, to, to get to the location, parking. potentially paying for parking uh, as well. Not to mention the time lost um, as part of their journey. So they'd have to factor in how much time they would spend getting from their home to the salon and then back again. Now, time is money. So if you're saving somebody time, you're saving them money. And as a result, all of the money that you've saved them from the petrol money, the parking, the time spent, etc., how much is that worth to somebody? You haven't even spoken about the unexpected, partially expected late appointment. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Sitting in a hair salon for four and a half hours, um, I think we, I, I went on a little bit of a rant last episode where I just talked about all of the things wrong with certain modern salons. And yeah, being able to avoid all of that, how much is that worth to you? But more importantly to somebody listening who wants to start a new business, what problem are you currently dealing with that is costing you money, either directly or indirectly? And if there was a solution in place people would be willing to pay. Uh, maybe one more example, education. So one thing that we're seeing a lot more of now is e-learning. Yes. People are going online through courses with the likes of Mastermind Mas and Udemy, for instance. And once again, the, the value proposition is straightforward. Where previously you would have to pay a tutor for that level of tuition, uh, on an hourly basis, now you can go on an online course. So how much money would you save by avoiding a tutor if you just used an online course instead? And these are the ways that you can start looking at packaging your offering for a customer group. One thing to also consider, we, we, we talked about um, uh, value propositions quite a bit there, but I thought it was quite useful to maybe spark some in, in important ideas uh, amongst anyone who's listening. Um, but, but one other thing to think about when you're looking at your target audience is how their purchasing habits change over time. For example, I still remember when people were very nervous about paying for things contactless. Yes. Were very unwilling to, to pay for things contactless. But now it's commonplace. You go to a supermarket, you even go to your local corner shop and people are willing to pay for things contactless. Um, I also remember when PayPal started to get a lot more popular. I just think a lot, more, <laughs> a lot more of our clients wanted to pay using PayPal as opposed to share their credit card information. So as purchasing habits, spending habits shift, it's important to think about how we position ourselves so that we are catering towards that audience effectively. It's essential. Um, if you are not moving with their needs, you're not moving. 
and I think I've touched upon the last thing I wanted to mention already, but I'll I'll drill down on it a bit more, which is when you are approaching your target audience, you must position yourself and your business as either solving a problem or addressing a need. So we are the problem solvers. So we've identified a problem that you, the customer, are dealing with, and we have devised a solution that helps solve the problem. Or we are addressing a need, which is we understand you, uh, Miss Customer, as somebody who needs to socialize or needs to be entertained. And we have devised a solution which addresses that need to socialize by setting up an event company or by providing you with an online video streaming service. So those are two different ways that you can position your company and market your company to an audience. Either we found a problem and we are going to solve it for you, or we've identified a need and we are going to address it on your behalf. It's interesting when custom, not customers, sorry, it's interesting when companies highlight problems which aren't already problems. Some, mm. of, some of the greatest companies will attempt to convince you that you have a need, which isn't currently a need. It might simply be a want, or it might be something you haven't actually fathomed before, but they will flaunt it to you as something which is now an option. And yeah, this, this can go two ways. So for example, we've seen the likes of Apple identify a, a new form of device. And to be fair, it wasn't Apple who, uh, who um, created the tablet, but they were definitely ones who revolutionized the tablet. And before the tablet came about, I'm pretty sure very few people in day-to-day -day life said, okay, I need something which is bigger than my mobile phone, but smaller than my laptop that I can carry around and do things that I will do on my mobile phone with. It sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But it worked. I remember it does. It worked brilliantly. I remember, oh, this was when I was much younger, in my clubbing days, I remember girls when the iPad first came out making calls in clubs on their iPad. <laughs> there are so many problems with what I just said. I'm telling you. But this is thought leadership, and it's another really important part of marketing, which is you don't necessarily just need to follow trends in order to serve your customers. If you are a innovator, if you are a visionary, you can create solutions which are things that people hadn't even considered before and build a whole business around it. I want to touch upon that in more detail a little bit later on. I think my favorite example of that is Elon Musk. So I'm going to talk a bit about Elon Musk a little bit later on because I think he's definitely a visionary. Um, and there's one case study that I think we'll talk, talk about uh, closer to the end. Last thing I want to talk about when it comes to target uh, audience is segmentation. We may, think, 
we may think we know our our audience well, but if you believe that your audience is just one demographic, dare I say you're missing out on some of the nuances in the people who follow you. And by segmenting your audience, you then understand how they differ and can apply that information to engaging with them more effectively. So if your if your audience, for example, ranges between 24 and 60, the way you might want to communicate with the 24 to 30 year olds may be very different to the way that you might want to communicate uh, to the 50 and 60 year olds. And by understanding how those different audiences act, you can make sure that you optimize the way you communicate with them. Yes. I think the prime example would be LVH in terms of the demographics that we cover because they're so mm. broad. Um, almost thinking from our infancy and a period of ignorance to our state right now and almost an acute understanding. In our ignorance, I was just looking at four generations of black women um, eagerly speaking and almost eulogizing over here and seeing something that actually can be consumed by a wide range of women, not truly understanding that actually each one would have to be marketed to differently, that mm -hmm. some of the younger ones might be your biggest fans but won't be the ones who will pay, that your 24 to 34-year-olds might be your high rollers, the ones who will actually um, produce most of your sales, that those in the categories above 34 to 60 might have to rely on their younger siblings um, or children for advice on who to go with and might have different preferences, i.e. professionalism is nice to someone under the age of 24, but essential to someone over the age of 40. Um, just this soft data is crucial in understanding how you market to all of these people. And then when it comes then, to... Go for it. Sorry, go ahead. And, and then when it comes to actually categorizing them in terms of who will be your blue mooners, as we've learned to call them, those people who are going to purchase but will purchase infrequently, um, who will be your regular purchasers but low level um, in terms of their average order spend, who will be your high rollers, those who are actually potentially addicted to your product, or have a great deal of expendable income? And how do you communicate to each of them? Because the offers that you have, the products that you have, might not appeal to all of them at the same time. Yes, and one of the things that you can do, we, we've referred to, to, to them with very specific, well-defined names, but you can create personas for each one. So maybe you want to call one group, um, uh, high rollers yeah well even even more personal than that maybe you want to call maybe you want to call for instance uh, frugal uh, Fiona as the person who's not going to spend a lot of money um, but is is keen to purchase your product and you know create a backstory around frugal Fiona maybe we've got high spend Helen uh, somebody who spends a lot of money um, on, on a regular basis. 
maybe maybe you've got infrequent Irene, somebody who doesn't purchase very frequently, and you can almost have in your war room Irene, Helen, Fiona on the screen, and by making it more personal in your strategy discussions, you could just literally ask the question: How do we engage with Irene today? Where How do we go? work better? Yeah, exactly. What's what's Irene doing today? What what newspaper does Irene read? What magazine what magazines does she read? Where does she go on holiday? And some of those questions might seem uh, too too broad for 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 you as a product supplier to be concerned with, but trust me, they're not. Because you want to create a really vivid map of what this person's life looks like. Definitely. What do they care about most? What are their troubles? So, so we've talked about who are they. And I'd now like to talk a bit more about how we engage with them. So from your perspective, what is your approach to engaging with your target audience? I think first it starts with who are they, as you've mentioned. So once you know who they are, you will understand their discourse and how they communicate with the world. What are their challenges? What are their struggles? Where are they? Where do they spend their time? When you know where they are, you know where to market. Um, in the early days, I often asked myself the question of how do I influence those who are influential? Um, my, our younger uh, segment, our younger clients spent a great deal of time on social media and thus it was necessary for us to communicate our persona and our values, our characteristics through carefully selected influences, communicating value that way. But then there's more than that. Once you actually do have some of these customers, you are using direct email. Is it that some of these customers don't actually spend their time on social media, but they do via their emails? And that um, bi-weekly or monthly email is a great way of actually getting through to them. Is it that some of them actually appreciate the finer details? And what they will appreciate is the added value that you'll give them once the parcel actually arrives. Uh, the goodies in the parcel, the how-to guides, the little touches which help them to feel as if you actually really care about them and those touches which actually give them that visceral emotional connection with your company is it that actually some of them really value professionalism and you've identified that that one of the issues in your industry is trust so you offer text messages after every purchase notifying them and updating them on where their parcel is and when it will reach them um, have you chosen a different method of strategy for each social media platform? Um, do you use Instagram slightly different to Pinterest? Twitter slightly different to Tumblr? Um, are you on YouTube? If you are, what purpose does it have? So I think in, in short, it's for me, it's understanding where they are. Once you understand where they spend their time and what they are looking at, what they're digesting then you can attempt to influence what they're digesting by saying subtly here we are this is how we are curing your need in this space that you're currently in so practically i think one thing that people can do today 
is, as we've discussed, segment their customer into as many groups as they need to. I would say no less than three, no more than six. And then create what I refer to as a customer journey for each one. And what a customer journey is, plan out a week in the life of that persona. So from when that person wakes up to when they go to sleep, seven times from Monday to Sunday, what are they doing? Where are they going? Where are they socializing? Are they using their mobile phone? Are they watching Netflix? Are they going out to dinner? Are they going to church? Where are the touch points where they might actually come across your business? So when you start to think about what that customer journey looks like, whether they're getting on the bus to work or whether they're um, getting on the tube, whether they drive into work and they're listening to the radio, where are they actually paying attention to things? And then the question comes, what is the most optimal way that you could insert yourself into their day? Is it on the radio through an advert while they're driving to work? Is it on the side of a bus when they're at the bus stop? Is it on social media while they're scrolling through their phone? Is it, if, if depending on your business, is it an announcement at church? Where might your, your product or service be best placed to engage with your customer group? Because you know they're going to be there and you know that you'll have their attention. And then the question is, how do you then go about communicating it effectively, which we can touch upon in a lot more detail? I think the other thing that you said, which I think is really key, is special touches. Because one of the key challenges for any business, not just a new business, any business, is how do I stay memorable in the minds of a customer? And by providing those special touches, those thoughtful little trinkets, or maybe some extra goodies, or maybe a how-to guide, or a handwritten note, what you're doing is you're turning a transaction into a memory. And the beautiful thing about memories is people like to share them. So if you've created an experience for somebody, they're more likely to tell two or three people about their experience. And that's when you start to galvanize your audience through word of mouth. And rather than having a bunch of people that are uh, carrying out transactions with you, that's how you start to get fanatics. And the beauty of your fanatics is they will evangelize on your behalf. It's incredible because at no point in my life have I ever thought about opening a parcel, closing it again, and recording myself opening it again, and then sharing it with people. <laughs> However, that, even though it's not what I would do, is a common occurrence if you are sharing a product which is attached to a feeling. Um, if you don't believe your product is attached to a feeling, then you potentially don't know your product well enough because it is attached to a feeling. Can that feeling be shared? All you need to do is go on YouTube and type in unboxing videos. There are people who are making a, a, a decent salary by all they do is record themselves unboxing new products. Because there's a, there is a serotonin hit 
that comes when you when you purchase something new and you unbox it. That might be the only time where you're happy. That that initial unboxing when you then move on to the next product or service but that is something that people appreciate so the question for any business is how do you make that a viral experience or potentially viral experience it's, it's incredible it's, it's what motivated us to actually include sweets knowing that they're already on a high and you just want to maximize that high as much as possible um it's why so many restaurants focus on the aesthetics and the poor ones don't, and the poor ones refuse to actually renovate. A lot of people cannot remember the meal, but they remember the customer service, the waiter, or the way the waiter treated them, and the way the restaurant looked. So did you have a good time? Yes, because it looked great. But you didn't go there to look at it. You go there to eat, eat, should I say. But people <laughs> forget their purpose, their primary purpose. Qu question for you, bro. Is 2020, what is the most effective way currently to reach your audience? My, my pause is me thinking, because I don't want to give my 2018 and 2016 answer. I have my answer, and it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's still in line with my 2016 and my 2018. So I look forward to listening to this in 2025 to see if I still agree. I still firmly believe that by nature, human beings are followers and wish to be led. We wish to be told what to spend our money on. Um, and for that reason, I think all business owners need to carefully think about who is already influencing my target audience? Now, that does not necessarily mean that male or female with 250,000 followers on Instagram. As you mentioned, that might be the church leader, the school teacher, the, the GP. Who is actually influencing their decisions? Once you're able to identify that, then you want to be a person who can influence, a brand who can influence those who are already in a position of influence. That is power. When we, when we go through a purchasing experience, the, the, the element that we end up with, let's say, for instance, the box. Um, I, I just saw an advert for a PS4. Um, sorry, not PS4. Wow. This is how you know I, I just haven't touched games in a very long time. I'm, I'm, I'm a whole 10 years behind. Uh, I just saw an advert for a PS5. Um, and if I think about the value chain for a PS5, before that PS5 gets to your house, it changes hands with a lot of people. Sony builds it, but then Sony sells it to Curry's or Argos or uh, another retailer. Um, and in some cases, Argos, um, Curry's, etc., they may even have another retailer in front of them. So, for instance, you might have an Argos inside a, a supermarket these days. Um, and then through them, it can get to a transport company. So maybe you're getting it delivered to you and 
you've got the Royal Mail, FedEx, etc., actually delivering it to your house. Um, and then it's finally at your house. Now, at each stage of that transaction, or at each stage of um, that, that product distribution, is an opportunity to influence. And the closer it is to your house, the more impactful it is. So for instance, if we are talking about the, 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 the last barrier between you and your product, which would be the uh, delivery company, if you're able to have an impact or have influence or produce effective marketing with a company that delivers products to your house or to your customers' houses, you're in a very strong position. Now, in the online world, the people who are giving insight direct to your customers are often influencers. They may be your social media influencers. So the question that you can ask yourself is, how do I get close enough to the source? And how do I work my way back through the value chain? So we can give you a, a, an even more personal experience, which is we sell hair extensions, we sell custom-made wigs. So yes, we can work with influencers, but if we take a step back from the value chain, who are we dealing with there? We're dealing with hairstylists. So is there an opportunity for us to engage with a hairstylist or a group of hairstylists and encourage them to use our products and services? If we can, then that's going to be just as effective, if not more effective, than any other marketing strategy that we employ because we're meeting the customer almost at point of service. And that's possibly the most effective way to make sure that you can influence the customer's pe pe purchasing habits. In, in, in simple terms, you're already there. How did you know? It's almost as if you're reading my mind. These are the kind of things that some of the customers would be saying because they are going where they're already going. And at that venue, at that point of their need, they're finding something else which is of benefit to them. So it seems coincidental, but it's not. And that's the best marketing. I think we've all been in that situation where maybe we've been talking about wanting to buy a product um, or service, and then we've gone online and we've seen that promoted or advertised online, and we are convinced that somebody's listening into our phone calls. They might be. But what, what's also... What's also going on is the market analysis is now so sophisticated that we understand people's spending habits, we understand people's purchasing habits, and we know what they're going to buy based on purchase history, based on their demographic, based on the time of year. That information is gold dust to a company because by understanding our customers' data, we can understand their purchasing habits and then sell more effectively. Definitely. So I mentioned previously that when it comes to companies like Apple and Nike, they can take the rest of the year off in terms of advertising and still gross well over a billion. Why is that? Why is it that some companies don't necessarily need a strong advertising arm to still be successful? whereas other companies 
must consistently promote in order to generate revenue. The term that I'd refer to is brand, but I want to get your take on it. What what makes the difference between these companies? Mm. I think Jill down the road, or my neighbor Keith, would say, well, we just know them. But, but what does that mean exactly? We just know them. And I think what they would be trying to articulate is we feel like they're a person that we truly understand. Um, we understand what we get when we get them. There is a relationship. There's a history. There is trust. There is accountability. Um, not everyone has that. And thus, companies who do um, benefit from it, other companies who would like to benefit from it, will flaunt how many years they've been established to try to convey to new customers that, listen, we should be trusted. Do they know who you are? Um, with companies like Apple and Nike, they have had individuals represent them, embody them, that the customers have fallen in love with. There are many people who gravitated around Apple because of Steve Jobs and the, the, the mysticism around him. There are many people who gravitated around Nike because of their well-selected affiliations across the years in so many different sports and nations. There is that a, a, a kin spirit to the brand because the brand has been associated with something that you aspired to be or you loved. So and for that reason, they don't have to do anything because those memories live on. Apple is still riding on the wave of Steve Jobs. Nike is still, some people still think that Jordans are related to Nike. If this is long lasting, it's something that all businesses aspire for because once you have that, you have a lasting memory. You are in the minds of people. It's why McDonald's target kids. The Happy Meal is brilliant. Get them while they're young. and they will stick with you they will introduce you to their kids because they want their kids to go through that same experience why why is a food company giving toys yep remember the mcdonald's birthdays birthday parties oh my good i went to one only one (laughs) i was crying to go to more Listen, if you got invited to a McDonald's birthday party, I don't people listening to this right now who don't know. They don't know, they don't know. If you got invited to a McDonald's birthday party, I remember the one I went to and it was dark outside, so it felt super cool. It felt like I was out late. It was probably <laughs> six o'clock on a winter's evening. They, I, I went to one. They, they even had the um, the clown. They even had Ronald McDonald, someone dress, dressing up as him. I think he was slightly depressed, though. He smelled like alcohol, but... It doesn't matter because, like, it's 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 only in hindsight. I was lit. What do you mean? I got invited to a McDonald's birthday party. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And you touched upon something which was around personality. I think that is key. And one question that I've challenged us to think about within London Virgin Hair, but I challenge anyone else listening to this to also think about is if your customers were to describe your company. In three words, what words would they use? If they saw your company as a person, what adjectives would they use to describe that person? 
And the worst response is, I don't know. Because what that means is that we haven't had a lasting impression on the customers, which means that we don't have a brand yet, which means we are going to be a company that has to continuously market in order to make sales. We have a brand when people see our logo and it immediately elicits a certain feeling. So with that, what three words would I want my company represented by? So once you know the answer to that question, the follow-up question is, what steps do I need to take in order to instill in the minds of my customers that we represent those words? And as well as your day-to-day -day advertising and marketing, those additional steps are the things that move you from a business or a company to a brand. And I said I was going to talk a little bit about Elon Musk. He's one of my favorite people just because he's crazy. So Elon Musk, most people know him as the CEO of Tesla. I don't know whether he is still the CEO. He might have been kicked off the board at this stage because of his wacky antics. Yeah, for now. But he's a very interesting character. But fewer people are aware of a company uh, that he also started called The Boring Company. He also has another company called SpaceX, but he started a company called Boring Com The Boring Company. And The Boring Company, it creates tunnels and has currently been contracted to create tunnels under California. But a few years ago, I think it was 2016 now, The Boring Company decided for some reason that they were going to make flamethrowers. And not only that, there were two very interesting caveats. The first caveat was that Elon Musk, after building uh, the, the, these limited edition flamethrowers, he marketed them by saying, these are not flamethrowers. Um, and then the second caveat around his marketing to his customers were, was to say to his potential purchasers, do not buy these products. So the first thing he said was, these flamethrowers that I've just made uh, through a company that was built to drill tunnels under cities, these, these flamethrowers that I've made aren't actually flamethrowers. But secondly, don't buy them. They sold out in three days. And... <laughs> The reason why they sold out in three days is not because they were an amazing product. Very few people with the money to purchase the flamethrower needed a flamethrower in their life. But there was something about the spirit of this individual. There was something about his energy, his flamboyancy, his wackiness, which galvanized a group of people and encourage them to spend thousands of pounds on a product that nobody needs. And the reason why I talk about that is to illustrate the power of brand. That just if you just Google the boring company flamethrowers, you'll see what I'm talking about. But with a powerful enough brand, with enough brand recognition, you can convince people to purchase products that they don't even want. And the lesson there is, by demonstrating 
how you fit in an ecosystem by being a thought leader as opposed to just being a follower you can create that kind of following which means that you'll always have customers no matter what it's that understanding that fundamental understanding that your product isn't needed and i think once we get over our own hype um once we accept that it's just a box then we're able to really think about how we can best market this box to people who don't need it because most of the products which are being purchased aren't actually needed um evidence of that is most of them go on sale um for a fraction of what they're actually worth on black friday use that as a almost barometer um the greater the discount during black friday the less of value the product is in true reality um things which are not going on discount petrol diesel houses right right now to be fair they're pretty petrol is pretty cheap thanks to corona but that's a fair point you never yeah you never get a discounted house there's there's no there's no sales for houses there's no tk max for houses um and i think so once you once you get to that sobering point that your product isn't needed then you'll really think about helping people um or go really left wing and do an elon musk and and do it yeah and it's about understanding the power of branding and you can use your powers for good or evil so for instance burberry is another example of a company you mentioned sales uh previously and um uh, when your products go on sale it's a true indication of what it's actually worth but burberry actually destroy any garments they don't sell rather than let them go on sale now why would you do that why would you destroy potential revenue instead of letting it go on, on sale for a discounted price and the reason being is because you are protecting the exclusive nature of your brand yeah you know that your core customers care more about the exclusivity of the brand than they do about affordability mm-hmm. and therefore they're happy to hear that their products that they spent full price on aren't going to be worn by somebody who earns a lot less than they do for example it's why you never see gucci on sale or prada on sale because they've understood that their customers part of the value of their products is the fact that their customers can say this cost me an arm and a leg and by taking that away you're also taking away one of the key things that customers value exclusivity um and, and that, that, that's, sorry, sorry go ahead be, being affirmed in terms of value unfortunately people attribute value to material possessions and these possessions affirm their perceived status so it's really important to once you're trying to understand your target market understanding the value they attribute to that product and whether the pricing that you are choosing is appropriate um i remember vividly in 2015 being told by 
someone, uh, a sort of friend, that she would never pay less than a certain figure for her extensions. Um, without seeing the brand, without seeing any brand, it was just an off-the-cuff statement. She would never pay lower than a certain figure for her extensions because for her, quality meant above a certain price. <laughs> and this is why people queue up. Um, not in the early mornings, the night before for the latest Apple rollout. Now, how can we get our brand to that point where people are desperate to be seen with it first? And it's a tightrope because a lot of companies want to present a level of exclusivity but aren't in a position where they've earned the right yet. So how do you balance that? Well, the answer is, is you must start as you wish to continue. You can't start as a discounted brand and think you're going to be able to transform into a luxury one. It's more likely, to be fair, that you'll start as a luxury brand and transition into a discount one. But do not think that you can take those luxury customers with you. Because one of the things that those luxury customers liked about you is now gone. So if you if you are going to start off as a luxury brand, it's very possible, but you need a large runway. You need a lot of investment, for instance, to bide your time uh, for the odd one or two large customers who are going to keep you going, as opposed to the discounted brand who are expecting to gain revenue by selling to a large number of people. High turnover. Now, now what I think we'd be moving into if we continue this conversation is probably more kind of advanced level marketing where we talk, start talking about pricing strategy and maybe a bit more around competitor analysis. But as it's almost two o'clock in the morning and it's my birthday, I think we've probably got enough to maybe start this discussion and we'll delve into maybe another marketing discussion at a later date. And I wanted to speak about Audi and Lidl. No, but yes, you are right. Um, oh, go on. No, no, no. One more, one more. Audi and Lidl. Talk to me. Oh, I just, I just love Audi and Lidl. I, I, I love the, the disruptors, the Germans. Um, to think that the English football team is sponsored by a German company is amazing. When you actually just take a step back, and think about the history of the two nations. Who would have thought it that a German company will be sponsoring the English football team? Um, when Audi and Lidl emerged in the early 2000s, they were shunned. Um, you didn't want to carry that bag. No, 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 no. You could not carry that bag. <laughs> I'm sorry. Death before dishonor. Um, but... It was an insult to say that you were shopping at Lidl. It was an insult. And then the... Tw- 2008 credit crunch, financial crisis occurred, and suddenly people could no longer pretend that they shopped only at Sainsbury's, Morrison's, and Tesco's. Do you remember their excuses? Oh, but they've got a great bakery. The bakery is really good. Oh. <laughs> and, and, and they won. It, it swung in their way. But the reason I mention them is not to speak about their, their pricing strategy and how they're just minimal in what they do, but to actually speak about Tesco. Because to buttress Abby's point about not being able to go from being luxury 
to, to knowing your price point and knowing that your customers won't follow you if you go from luxury to bargain basement. Whilst Tesco isn't a luxury brand, Tesco, although they can compete with Audi and Lidl's prices to a certain extent, they've got certain inhibitions in terms of their infrastructure, their store space are just far too large to do so. They have chosen to create a subsidiary which is now competing with Audi and Lidl because they cannot do it themselves. They cannot lose their market by going down as low as Audi and Lidl. And they're trialing it. They're trialing it currently in the north. Um, if you haven't heard of it, it's because it's not succeeding right now because Audi and Lidl have completely swooped up the north. And it's just interesting to see how some of these companies who were winning for such a long period of time have had to accept that the market has shifted and their share has reduced. Um, another is Waitrose, um, Ocado. Yeah, they're not what they were. They're not because the brand hasn't stood the test of time. There's not, there, there isn't the shame linked to buying from some of these lower cost value for money uh, suppliers anymore. And that's because they've, they've had very effective marketing campaigns. They've advertised very well. But also people have shifted. We started off talking about people's purchasing habits. One of the things that we can't really control is the way that customer purchasing behavior is going to change over time. And with a credit crunch hitting, purchasing behavior changed. Now, all you can do is identify and pivot. And if you're unable to pivot, then you will end up losing market share. Deliveroo, as you said, are currently doing that. Final point, Deliveroo, during the first few weeks of lockdown, were winning. Why? Um, during financial crisis, whilst the purchase of luxuries reduce, the purchase of minor luxuries actually increase, i.e. people aren't going to restaurants, but they can actually afford a takeaway. So takeaways went up, people are at home. However, because of the prolonged lockdown period, delivery have now found that sales have slumped drastically. People are learning how to cook again. People are actually turning on the microwave. I say <laughs> suggest that is not cooking, but they're, they're actually choosing to cut a few vegetables and throw them into water. Please tell me there's seasoning involved. <laughs> and Deliveroo are furloughing staff. Now, this has all happened within a two-month period, a massive high and suddenly a drastic low. I mentioned Deliveroo because they were a, a disruptor to the market. And it just shows you how no one's immune we all have to stay on our toes because things can change so quickly. Agreed. And that is another episode. Bro, we did it. Five minutes over, but this is a, a one-hour episode. I'm really proud of us. Please let us know. Um, what do you think about the shorter form? Is it better? Um, we didn't include any questions on this occasion because we thought actually we, we like the sound of our own voices too much and your questions just fuel us. Um, is that the way to go or should we just re revolt to just one question? Please let us know. Maybe we could do a questions episode if we just literally commit an episode to just answering as many questions as we can in one go. I think that might, might work.
we also want to start getting people involved. So if you heard, if you've heard this and you think, well, these guys really don't know what they're talking about. They, they talk a good game, but you know, th there's a lot of holes in their knowledge. Come and prove us wrong, please. Come and share your information and your wisdom with us because we are open. We are vessels ready to be to be filled with knowledge. Definitely. So jump on, get involved. And I've got a few people in mind already. Um, so watch this space. All right, bro. Well, it's bedtime for me. I'm going to get a good night's sleep and try my best to to enjoy my my birthday in isolation. I will send you a balloon emoji and nice happy birthday just again. One. Just just the one, just the one. You know when you send one, it's bigger. If you send loads, it's really small. <laughs> I get you, I get you. I appreciate you, bro. Have a great All one, right. people. Take care. Peace. Take care. Bye-bye.